Welcome to our podcast series about Grannis Island. You will learn about the history, the animals, the underwater life, the salt marsh, the plants, and the birds. Grannis Island is a great place to be because it has a large variety of ecosystems that are vitally important to wildlife. We are traveling to Grannis Island, New Haven, Connecticut. Located at 41 degrees north latitude, 72 degrees 53 minutes west longitude. It is an island on the Quinnipiac River, which is bordered by salt marsh. In fact, Grannis Island is only a real island at high tide. As we cross by the Grand Avenue Bridge, we will try to imagine what this area was like long before the bridge was here. Long before we were here. Let's talk to Nick Bellatoni, the Connecticut State Archaeologist. If you go back far enough, all right, and I'm talking like 20,000 years ago, Granis Island and New Haven would have been covered by a glacier, a mountain of ice that was as much as a mile up, an ice age that came down, and this was the maximum, this is where the, the ice ended. So after that time period when the ice melted about 15,000 years ago and Connecticut becomes ice free, uh, places like Granis Island were probably underwater because of the melting water from the ice. It was probably the water was a lot higher draining in. You see Long Island, Long Island here, Long Island Sound? We, we think of that as the ocean because it's part of the Atlantic now. But when the first Indians came here 10,000 years ago, that was a freshwater lake right here. This was like a lake, I don't know if any of you have been upstate New York, like Lake Champlain and others. It was just like that. It was fresh water. To get to the ocean, you had to go over a hill you call Long Island and go out another 90 miles along the, what's the flat, what we call the continental shelf. That was all land out there. Uh, and so this was, this was like on the border of a lake with a river coming through from meltwaters from the ice. What ends up happening is as the ice keeps melting, the ocean's water rises. Just like you have an ice cube in a glass. When the ice melts, it creates the water that is left it comes up. So basically what ends up happening is as the water pushes back and rises, it bumps into Long Island and it comes, it breaks out on the eastern portion where we have the race today and it becomes salt water. And this area starts to now drain and becomes basically a salt marsh. So that all doesn't happen until probably, oh, I don't know, I'd say probably about six, 7,000 years ago. But when that happens, it makes for a great environment over here to get food. And that's why we start seeing the first people occupying Granis Island around 5,000 years ago. So the salt marsh wasn't always there, but it was there and had formed by the time people started to use it. And it was one of the reasons why it was such a great place. We asked Nick to tell us about the changes the island has seen over the centuries. At the time the salt marsh is forming, around 6,000, 7,000 years ago, it starts to get warm here. The ice has melted. In fact, it's still melting today with global warming. Um, but what happens is the soil now becomes a little more fertile. Pollen comes in, seeds come in, and we start getting a, a forest that you and I are familiar with, with oak and cherry and hickory and, 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 and pine trees too. And so 
the whole environment, when it gets warmer, starts to really change. And because of that change, we have what we call a greater degree of biodiversity. You know what you used to have for animals out here? Reindeer. You had reindeer, herds of reindeer went up the Quinnipiac River back then, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 years ago. Uh, herds in the hundreds and hundreds of animals. And the first people, the first Native Americans that came here, they, you, that's what they hunted. We even had mastodons, elephant-like creatures. It's hard to think of New Haven with elephants in it. But that's what the world was like when they first came here. In fact, I had a great, um, remember I told you about how the sea levels have risen because of the melting ice? I had a fisherman call me about, oh, about 10 years ago. He's out beyond Long Island. He's out in the ocean fishing with his nets. He's got his trowel down in the, and he's scooping up his nets. Well, he brings up his net, and not only does he have, you know, all kinds of fish and stuff, but he has this huge, it looked like a tooth. It was like this big. And it had, you know, the bumps on, on, on the top of the tooth and some of the roots, and it was like that big. And he couldn't figure out what it was doing, what kind of, what a kind of animal or what it was. So he called me, we came, came down, took a look at it, and I explained to him, it was the molar tooth of the lower jaw of a mastodon. And the first thing he said to me is, what, what's the elephant doing in the water? And I'd explain to him, when that elephant was here, that was all dry land out there. That wasn't the ocean. And so it really changes. The environment changes. The plants and animals change. And as a result, when humans get here, they adapt to those changes based on what they found and what kind of foods they could feed their family with. So the area was first used probably about, oh, I'd say probably about 9,000 years ago. But the tribe called the Quinnipiacs don't form until about 1,000 years ago. So for much of that time, we don't know what they called themselves. Uh, uh, but they were certainly the ancestors of what would become the Quinnipiac Indians. We asked Fox Running, the Quinnipiac Indian medicine man, to tell us the legend about how Long Island Sound was made. How did Long Island Sound get to be? How many of you people know about glaciers? You know what glaciers are? Yeah? Okay. Well, at the end of the Ice Age, when the glacier retreated, what is now, now Long Island Sound was once a big valley with a large lake in the middle of it. Now at that time, 10, 12, 13,000 years ago, there were a lot of animals were running around in this valley. Animals you don't see today. Things like woolly rhinoceros, mammoths, mastodon, giant beaver, and many other creatures. And also along this valley, different groups of Native Americans were hunting these animals. Well, out of jealousy, some of the natives started to quabble about who had the best hunting territory or would fight over who had the right to hunt in certain areas. And so they began to squabble and fight amongst themselves. And the creator said, look, there's enough for everyone. Why are you fighting? You must stop. 
I have provided all that you need. Please don't fight anymore. So for a while there was peace. And after a period of time, they went back to fighting again. And the Creator came back. This time he was furious. And he said to the people, because you have disobeyed me, I will destroy this land. And with that, he stomped his foot on the eastern end of what is now Long Island Sound. And the waters rushed in, killed all the animals, killed a lot of people, and a few managed to escape by running to the, the highlands, which is now the shoreline of Connecticut. And that's how Long Island Sound came to be today. The name Grannis Island came from its owner, Percy W. Grannis of North Haven, Connecticut. Ben Britton of the New Haven Historical Society came in to talk about the Quinnipiacs, who used the island long before it got its name. Um, we usually see where Native Americans live is often um, near a river or sometimes near where a river uh, kind of branches out so you could use one for navigating your canoe and another for getting water to keep it kind of fresh. But um, it doesn't appear that they had planning like city planning. They were semi-migratory, they were seasonal migrants. So part of the year they would be down near the coast and they could um, harvest oysters. Another part of the year they would go inland and they would um, hunt. But it appears that they came back to the same areas every year. You may be wondering the ways the Native Americans used the island. Because of the surrounding salt marshes and water, the natives had a wide open view in all directions. This was an advantage during an attack because they had time to organize their defenses. Quinnipiac River was very important to them. And the reason is that when societies grow up, they need water, right? So if, if a society is going to come um, from anywhere, say, um, Egypt or anywhere else, they need a water supply. So the Quinnipiac River is a good source of fresh water for them. Um, it's also important for navigation. They could travel up it to, um, to the Tunxis Indians in Farmington, right, and trade with them. Um, they can get clay deposits from the river itself, which was important for their pottery, right, because they had no metal tools before the Europeans arrived. The way they made their houses, they would use wigwams which were kind of like a dome tent we see nowadays. That's probably where the dome tent came from. And it's constructed in a similar way. They take young trees called saplings that you could bend, right? You ever go out in the woods and you could just bend these trees? They're not very hard. They would take those and they would beat the ends of them or they would tie them together with hemp and they would create um, a kind of structure like, let's say you took a pizza cutter and went like this across a pizza. That's how they would lay the beams, kind of in a dome. And then they would cover these with uh, bark with animal skins. They would create a little hatch where you can get the smoke out of the smoke. It was very smoky inside the wigwams. Um, and before they even constructed these houses, they would try to get a lot of rocks or find a very rocky place because that also kept the heat in. If you could heat up the ground, the rocks would stay warm overnight. An archaeological investigation was conducted in 1947 through 1949 by the Archaeological Society of Connecticut. In the initial examination, they discovered a layer of water-worn cobblestones, which underlies the entire expanse of the island. A layer of clear sand covered these cobblestones. 
This map shows a cutaway view. So basically what happened four or 5,000 years ago, Native Americans that were in the area were basically in small groups. They moved around with maybe three or four families, um, utilizing the river, the highlands, the coast, moving around constantly, going where nature provided food. So Granis Island was a great spot because in the springtime you can get fish coming up that were coming up the rivers to spawn. So you got a lot of fish coming through there. And of course the shellfish beds are all in that area. They could harvest the shellfish beds. And plus it was an easy place to go hunt and, and so forth. So it was a great place to make a living. Small island, they can go out there and camp, but they can get a lot of food. Population numbers vary. Um, <coughs> if you look at, there's a plaque um, on Townsend Avenue and it says there were 250 people, I think, here. Um, Recent scholarship suggests that there were actually closer to 460 people, which is quite a lot more, right? And those are just the people that have been counted, and that's really an estimate because they counted, when the colonists first came here, they counted about 49 fighting men, and that was really the only number we had to go by in the early days, 1638. And um, they've sort of calculated, well, if there were 49 fighting men, then there must have been so many women and children as well. And so our total number really comes from that. But th those are only the fighting men that they've counted. So we think close to 500 people, uh, maybe more at the time of contact. And that number was really a lower number than it had been. Because you got to remember, when the English first came to this area, there had already been colonization happening. The Dutch were already trading in this area for quite a number of years before and diseases had really decimated the population. The Pequot tribe was down about 77% of, from their pre-contact numbers. So who knows how many people were really here before European contact. The Quinnipiacs had several bands, about four or five different um, bands of the tribe, and each was led by a sachem, a tribal leader. And the sachem ruled with the council of elders around him, older people that would you know, give him advice. And he, he or she really ruled um, by persuasion. If the people were against what the sachem had to say, they wouldn't necessarily follow his rules, his or her, her rules. And um, oftentimes they could replace the sachem with somebody else. And when I say his or her, it's important because you asked me about gender roles. Oftentimes the sachem, the leader, was a woman. Shampishu, for example, who ruled the Quinnipiac band in Guilford, was a woman. They were a nation of Algonquin people, okay? You start off with a band of Native Americans, which would be the Quinnipiacs, the Monongatucks, and so forth that I explained to you already, which would be like a county. The county would belong to an even larger confederacy, which would be considered a state. That state would belong to an even larger one, which would become a nation. Religion and medicine were really closely entwined for the Quinnipiacs, um, particularly because there wasn't this sort of distinction between the spiritual world and the physical world from Native Americans. Um, they were really close together. So medicine men would use a mixture of um, different plants for medicine as well as prayer. And they were quite effective. And they had one main god, Kitan and he was the creator of the heavens and the earth and all the people, and also all the spirits, because there were spirits everywhere. 
If you cut down a tree, there was a spirit in that tree, and you would leave him maybe a gift of tobacco. At Granis Island, we found some midden piles. We asked Roger Colton from the New Haven Peabody Museum to talk about them. So people who lived here prehistorically or maybe into the historic period Native Americans would fish and collect uh, shellfish and other things and, and basically it's the garbage that's left behind. But a typical midden of this kind not only has shell and, uh, and, and um, maybe bones but also uh, remnants of tools and other things and sometimes you find structures in them. And uh, islands are in the coastal California the middens grew up around the native houses, so you get circular depressions where people lived that were the remnants of the house. Um, I haven't excavated in one of these, but if it's, uh, if it's a Native American bin, we're likely to find or like to see artifacts on the surface, flaked or groundstone tools, uh, typically made out of quartzite around here. Um, you're likely to see historic uh, shell heaps also, because people obviously collect uh, uh, oysters and everything still to today. And, uh, but if you were to find, the context is sort of key. I mean, this is not a typical context where you would find a historic structure. So if you found a pile of all oysters, no other species, next to a historic foundation, you'd be pretty sure it's a modern you know, or a historic era, post-contact kind of. Well, artifacts are really important because usually when we think of history, right, we think of what's written down or maybe what we could see on a documentary. But there's something about touching something, something about seeing something from the time period, or going into an old historic building and learning about how people lived in colonial times that um, brings something across that you don't really get from just reading it on a page. So artifacts are really important. That's why museums are so popular, right? We could all read about George Washington in a book or read about the Quinnipiacs, but if we can go to the museum like the Historical Society, and see some of the artifacts that they used, we can get a better understanding of their culture. And oftentimes, artifacts are all we have to go by, especially with the Quinnipiacs, right? They didn't have a written language before the Europeans arrived. So most of what we have to go by is the artifacts. And we know, for example, that there have been people in this area of Connecticut for about 10,000 years. And we wouldn't know that just by looking at the written word. So artifacts are really important. Several Quinnipiac stone-lined hearths were discovered during the dig. The area of excavation was 52 quadrants of the southeastern side of the 1 and 3 fourths acre island. Refuse pits, plain hearths, and shell heaps were also unearthed. The archaeologists at Granis Island discovered a surprise. And a number of dog burials were, um, were excavated. When I say dog burials in this case, um, they weren't just dogs that died and, you know, they buried them. These were laid out in a specific way with artifacts that suggested it was some kind of ceremony or ritual. We don't really understand well what that ritual was. Um, we do know that Indians out in the West, the Plains Indians, had a, a major ceremony every year called the White Dog Ceremony, where they honored a, a white dog uh, with white fur on it. So um, there is a, some Native Americans did have special relationships with dogs and it seemed to have been what was going on here. But we really don't understand it because it was so long ago and we have so few sites that help us really interpret that. So 
Uh, yeah, it does seem to have some kind of spiritual connection, but we're not quite sure what that is. They knew that um, Northeastern woodland Indians had um, used dogs, and they weren't really sure what kind of dogs, they weren't really sure where they came from, because they were indigenous to the land, they didn't come with the Europeans. Um, but they found the dog remains in Granis Island, which tipped them off to the fact that the Quinnipiacs had had dogs, and that they were probably somewhat significant in religious rituals, because, because of the way the dogs are buried. Um, usually they bury um, Usually they bury uh, Native Americans or Quinnipiacs with their facing the north, uh, I'm sorry, the southwest, which is where Ketan lives, I guess. And uh, I guess the dog was buried in a similar fashion. Remember, archaeologists, you know, what we use are the material things we find in the ground. The stone tools, the clamshells, the bones of the dogs. And we could recognize that something special is going on here and we could try to understand it as best we can based on our digs and what we recover but that's a hard one because it has to do with the spirit world it has to do with what people are thinking it's a thought world about the world around them and that's sometimes the hardest thing to get to sometimes it's what we try to do and understand but what they the nature of their ceremony, what was in their mind when they were burying these dogs in a special way, hard to get to, hard to get to. Uh, but that's hopefully someday we'll be able to figure it out. Sometimes you get to the point where you think everything's been found, you know? And then you realize, you know, something surprises you and you realize it isn't. My job as a state archaeologist is not to dig everything up, my job is basically to preserve it and protect it so that if any of you guys ever decide you want to be an archaeologist someday, by the time you can grow and go through college and get your degree and become an archaeologist, there won't be any sites left. It'll be all destroyed. So my job is one more of preservation. I try to preserve sites for future generations because if I don't do it now, they'll all be under concrete and you won't be able to get to it and it'll all be destroyed. So. Um, but do I get surprises? Absolutely, all, all the time, all the time. It just Sometimes I just am amazed what comes out of the ground that I, I didn't expect. Well, fortunately, people are becoming more environmentally aware. So what was once very, very polluted is now being cleaned up, okay? That's very important because you pollute the land, the air, and the water it affects every one of you. Native Americans respected the land. 